You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. All right. Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through the first part of verse 15. If you haven't already, uh, I've been making those little green sheets which are on the table right there where the camera is. Don't be afraid to get up right now and to grab one. Uh, Those are the scripture references that we'll be looking at uh, today. All right. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. We've been working through this second chapter of Ephesians. And what we saw is that it is a big before and after before Christ and after Christ, without Christ and with Christ. For example, we saw that in verses 1 through 10, we saw that we were spiritually dead and God has now made us spiritually alive. We saw that we were totally worldly and now we've been exalted into the heavenlies. We saw that we were following after Satan. We were slaves of Satan And now we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Uh, We are ruling with him. Uh, This week and next week, we are going to see the absolute miracle of God bringing two absolutely opposing parties together into one. Um, Our outline is going to be simple. This week, we are going to look at the means to God's end goal And then next week, we are going to look at what that end goal is, namely a unification. So let's read this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15a. This is the very word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This ends the reading of God's word. Uh, Let's look to him uh, for guidance. Father, we come to the reading of your word, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that we would truly, truly tremble at your word. I pray that we would see this as not a bunch of suggestions, but as commands. I pray that we would see this not as a bunch of stories, but as the truth of who you are. And I pray, God, once again, the things that we that I'm going to talk about today, we've all heard many, many times before, and the tendency is to just say, oh yeah, I know that. I pray that you would truly show us how amazing you are and the work that you've done uh, to bring us who were far away near to yourself. Uh, we thank you for this time, and we pray that you would open hearts, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Israelites, the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Gergesites, 
the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the barbarians, the British, the French, Chinese, American, Asian American, African American, Asian, South African, rich, poor, northerners, southerners, Muslims, Christians, Jehovah's Witnesses, atheists, black, white, yellow, brown, gay, straight, LGBTQ, male, female, cisgender, transgender, athletic, academic, short, tall, thin, overweight, able-bodied, disabled, etc., etc., etc. We are a divided people. And we love to divide people along racial lines, economic lines, uh, classes, religion, affiliate, uh, political affiliations, cultures, and a whole host of other categories. Um, I have been blessed uh, to travel um, a, a good portion of the world, and I have seen many, many different cultures. Um, some are very similar to ours. Some are vastly different uh, from ours. Some speak English. Most do not speak English. Um, some are very dark-skinned. Others are very light-skinned. All seem to have their own strong opinions regarding their own country and all of the other countries in the world as well. Some countries and cultures get along. Others do not. Because of all of these cultural and political and religious differences, our world is in constant conflict. Constant conflict. From tribal and neighborhood wars to civil and world wars. Here's what I want to say about all of this. Differing cultures and languages and customs are all good things. They're all good things. The fights and divisions that result from these differences are not. They are not good. James uh, 4, I know that James is speaking mainly to Christians in James chapter 4, but I also believe that it, pro it provides an explanation for all of the fights and divisions that we see in the world around us. Here's what he says in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Selfishness and ungodly pride uh, in a culture or in a specific people group, pride in a, in a group's identification, are all the sources, are all the sources of the division that we have in this world. Uh, pride and selfishness are always, always traced back to sin. Always traced back to sin. Here's an interesting thing uh, that I want us to think about, that I want you to get. Despite all of our differences, all of our cultural and political differences and racial differences, 
when it comes down to the seven plus billion people in the world, we are all the same in the two main areas that are most important. We are all created in the image of God and we are all sinners in desperate need of a savior. That brings us all together, no matter where you are from. The Bible is clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible is clear that we have been created in the image of God. The Bible is clear, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible is clear when it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All, all, all. We are all all the same. It doesn't matter what country you're from, what language you speak, what your personality is, what your abilities are, what your religious affiliations or political affiliations. We are all the same. We all have the same problem, and that problem has only one solution, and we should all be seeking that one solution together. Let me say this. That democratic or Republican senator that you hate is created in the image of God and is a sinner in need of a savior, okay? That Muslim or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or atheist or Christian churchgoer is created in the image of God and is a sinner in need of a savior. That gay, straight, transgender classmate or coworker or neighbor is created in the image of God Almighty and is a sinner in need of a savior. And we could go on and on, but you get the point. And here's what I want to say. When we begin to see people at that level, it will change your perspective about how you feel about people. You will see everyone as someone created in the image of your creator, in the image of God, who is a sinner in need of a savior. That's going to be the focus of today's sermon. But before we get into that, I think it's important for us to understand the specific cultural and religious climate around the time of Jesus. Because just like in our day and age, there were a lot of divisions. There were a lot of people um, being divided on various lines. Uh, it is part of sinful human nature to build barriers between us and other people and to shut out people. You're not like me. And we shut them out. We build up walls. In the New Testament times, uh, there were several divisions. For example, there was a great division between those who were free and those who were slaves. Those who were masters and those who were slaves. The slaves were treated almost as subhuman. They were treated as inferior uh, to those who were freed people. They were looked down upon and they were elevated just slightly above animals. Talking about genders, women were treated uh, very, uh, very often very poorly during these times. They were looked down upon as being inferior as well. Um, husbands often treated their wives maybe a little bit better than they treated their slaves or in the same way. 
talking about specific cultures, the Greeks uh, saw their culture as superior to everybody else's. Uh, they were the superior race, and they considered everyone else to be barbarians. Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 1 and also Colossians chapter 3. The Greek language was considered to be the language of the gods, the language of the gods. There was also a divide between Jews and Gentiles, just like the Greeks saw you have one class, the Greeks, and everyone else, the barbarians. The Jews said, nope, you have two classes, the Jews and everyone else known as the Gentiles. We don't have time to go into it right now, but if you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would see these divisions very, very clearly. The Jews saw themselves as superior and everyone else as inferior. And it was actually quite sad. The saddest thing uh, was how the Jews actually interpreted it, the love of God for them. They saw it as a love only for them and not for anyone else. When Israel looked at God and said, I, when God looked at Israel and said, I love you, Israel interpreted that as, I love you and I hate everyone else. It's just you and I, I hate everyone else. And what God really meant is, I am shedding my love on you so that you can represent me in the world and share that love with everyone else in the world. I love the world. I love what I have created. There's many proofs of this in the Bible. Um, you look at the genealogy of Jesus. This is an amazing thing. In the genealogy of Jesus, there are Gentiles in there. That's crazy. And no less, there are women, Gentile women in there. God is not. He's breaking down those barriers. You think about the, 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 the prophet Jonah, who was told to go to one of the most wicked, vile, Gentile cities in the known time. And God said, go to them and tell them to repent. And they did, they repented. And Jonah absolutely hated it, hated it. And I love how the book ends. It ends because God causes this plant to grow up uh, to, to shade Jonah from this horrible heat. And then God kills the plant in the same day. And Jonah is angry, and God's like, do you have a right to be angry? And he's like, yes, I do, enough to die. And God says, here's an interesting thing. You had more concern about this plant, which you did not cause to grow, and you had no idea that it was going to die. How should I not be concerned about this great city in which there are 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? God was reaching out to the Gentiles. It was not, I love you and I hate everyone else. God even spread his word in pagan Babylon. Pagan Babylon, that, that godless nation. God sent his missionaries, so to speak, uh, such as uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they stood firm and did amazing, amazing things to where several of the kings are like, there is no God like the Lord God of Daniel, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Jews hated this to no end. They missed God's point. God called Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing for who? 
everyone in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was not an exclusive thing. It's just us and nobody else. I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to the entire world. There is so much evidence, like I said, if you read the Bible about this hatred that the Jews had uh, for the Gentiles. Um, one rabbinic writer uh, told of a, of a Gentile woman who came uh, to a rabbi and she confessed that she was a sinful and that she wanted to be righteous and that uh, she knew uh, she wanted to be accepted into the Jewish uh, uh, faith because she knew that they were closer to God, that they were near to God. And this rabbi said, no, you cannot come near and then shut the door in her face. We see even Peter, right? Peter, who had spent over three years in the constant presence of Jesus. As Jesus is interacting with Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles, not shutting anyone out, and Peter still didn't get it. It had to take a vision from God in Acts chapter 10, which is saying what I have declared clean, don't you dare declare as unclean. I am including the Gentiles in my salvation message. It took a while for the apostles uh, to get it, but they finally grasped God's grand plan of salvation for every nation. And like I said, that's our focus in our text today. I want to show you what I mean. It's actually the focus in these first three chapters in um, Ephesians as he's breaking down this barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles, the rest of the world. Um, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Um, actually, it's that whole section, but I'm only going to read a few verses. What I want you to do is I want you to transport yourself back to your grade school English classes, right? Um, and I want you to look at pronouns here, personal pronouns, because there are two different types in here. There is the first person personal pronouns, and then there is the second person personal pronouns. And I want you to notice that in this passage as I read it. He starts with the first personal um, person personal pronouns, um, and he is talking about the Jews here. And here's what he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And he continues using the we and the us up through verse 12, and then he switches from the first personal uh, person personal pronouns to the second person personal pronouns. Listen once again. Verse 12 continues with the first person personal pronouns. He says this, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 13, he says this, in him you also. You also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Everything that I just said about Jews is also true about you as well. We are united with faith. Uh, the Jews were first, and then we have the Gentiles here. Now I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Notice again the personal pronouns that are used. Here he starts off with the yous, 
and then he switches back to the we's. Listen to what he says. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're all in this boat together. I know that you're looking at Jew-Gentile division. There is no Jew-Gentile division here. And then I believe that as he talks about the we's and the us's in verses 4 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, he is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles together. And then when we get to our passage in verse 11, he divides them again only to bring them together again. He's saying separate, separate, together. Separate, separate, together. Jews and Gentiles have been united in Christ. And we're going to look at more of that next week. Um, this, uh, the bringing of these two groups together in Christ is the end goal. And like I said, we're going to see that next week. Right now, I want to focus in on the means to that end. How did he bring these two groups together. Paul begins by reminding them in so many words, these Gentile Christians in Ephesus, that salvation is from the Jews. Salvation originated with the Jewish people, but it didn't end there. Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 22, he's talking to a woman of Samaria, and he says, salvation is from the Jews. It's from the Jews. Paul repeatedly says that the gospel goes to the Jew first and then also to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. Why? Because it originated with the Jewish people. It originated with Abraham and it climaxed in their Jewish Messiah and our Jewish Messiah, Jesus. The Gentiles' previous condition is described in verse 11 and 12 um, of Ephesians chapter 2. He's, there's two major divisions. He talks about their social alienation and their spiritual alienation. Their social alienation revolves around the fact that they were uncircumcised. They were called the uncircumcision. Now, circumcision is something that's physical. The Jews took great pride in their circumcision. So much so that many of them saw the physical act of circumcision as making them right with God. That's what made them right with God. Paul is quick to note here, first of all, that circumcision, it was actually a physical act that took place by physical, human, polluted hands, okay? So that would give you an indication of how effective it is. And he's really saying that Circumcision has really no spiritual benefit outside of faith in God or faith in Jesus Christ. He said as much in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Listen to this directly addressing the Jewish people in the congregation um, in Rome. He says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart 
by the Spirit, not by the letter. You could not be more clear than that. I don't care if you're physically circumcised. If you are not spiritually cut off from the world, it does not matter. Not only were they socially alienated, they were also spiritually alienated. And Paul lays out five areas in which they were spiritually alienated. The first is that they were separated from the Christ. They were separated from the Messiah. They had no messianic hope of a savior or a deliverer. Their history had no purpose, no plan, no destiny, except for ultimately the wrath of God being poured out to them on them, and they were completely unaware of that. They saw the world through a totally different perspective. Their gods, their way of salvation, their view of the afterlife, they were completely cut off. And it's even more tragic when you think about the fact of Paul. He talks about being in Christ in chapters 1 and 2. And so all of that that was theirs in Christ was not, did not apply to those who are outside of Christ. The spiritual blessings, uh, the being chosen, the being adopted, the being sealed with the Holy Spirit, none of that was their condition at all. The Gentiles' second and third way in which they were alienated, uh, they're similar to one another. They were both alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Probably referring to that major covenant that God made with Abraham, uh, where God makes a covenant with Abraham and it says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God promised that a Messiah would come uh, that would free the world from their sin. Israel was also a commonwealth or a nation. They were a theocracy. They were ruled by God. God was their king. They were a covenant people to whom God, this is crazy and amazing, God, the God of this universe who spoke the world into existence, actually bound himself to them in an unbreakable covenant. This was not a casual relationship. This was, I am binding myself to you forever. That's what God did. He had bound himself to them and he ruled over them. But the Gentiles were excluded from this covenant and God's kingdom. The fourth and fifth uh, ways that the Gentiles were alienated is that they had, when you take all of that together, they had no hope and they were without God in this world. They were hopeless because although God had promised to include them one day, they did not know it and therefore had no hope in a deliverer. And they were godless because although God had revealed them himself to them, even in creation, they suppressed the truth of God and believed a lie and sought for everything else but God for salvation and for joy. That is a pretty sad commentary on a people group, okay? It's a sad state to be in, but just like when we looked at verses one through seven, um, the story does not end there. Because one of my favorite words in the Bible uh, begins verse 13. This is a horrible situation. You are cut off. You have no hope whatsoever. End of story? No. But. But. And I love this. But now. That was the past. We're talking the present. 
but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. I love that. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. There's a lot in these verses, beginning with the fact that the Gentiles were separated and now they have been brought near. Um, I'm I'm excited about next week to talk about the unity um, that is ours in Christ now. Uh, But like I said, I want to focus on the means uh, for the remaining time that we have of how they were brought from far away near. The text says that they were brought near by the blood of Christ. And it says, who broke down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. When it talks about blood and it talks about the flesh of Jesus, I believe that that is talking about his crucifixion, his death on the cross. We talk a lot about Jesus dying for our sins. Almost every week we talk about that. Why? Because that's the gospel and that is the most important thing. You don't need seven steps to a better marriage, right? You need to know what is my relationship with God. Okay, so we talk a lot about that. The symbolism of Christ's death is deeply, deeply rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament. There are a ton of laws. And if you start to get into like Leviticus, you're just like, oh my goodness, is any of this relevant to me at all? Like, let's just pass this, right? Let's pass Leviticus and Numbers. But it's very relevant because rooted in this sacrificial system, doing this and doing that is the gospel the people were imperfect. And because they were imperfect, they could not approach God. The one that they were created to be with, they had no access to him whatsoever. They had sinned, and the only penalty for their sins was the death penalty, separation from God forever and ever. Implied in the Old Testament sacrificial system was the actual death of the person. You sinned, you die. You sinned, you die. That's what it was. Everyone was accountable for their own sins. But God, right, in his grace, had set up a wonderful substitutionary system to where an animal who had done no wrong, was obeying God the way that it was created to obey God, would be put in place of a human who had done everything wrong. Who is the Lord that I should serve him, right? That animal would be killed for the person. We've mentioned this many times, but it bears repeating. Each person if you think about it, in the Old Testament, uh, they, were com- they were to come to the priest with an unblemished uh, lamb or goat in their possession. The priest was the one who was set up by God as a mediator between uh, God and the people since the people could not have access to God. They couldn't approach God on their own. The priest was to speak to God on behalf of the people. The priest was to say, Jason is a sinner. Lord God, will you forgive him. 
That's what the priest did. The people were to bring this lamb to the priest. And when they brought the lamb, here's what they were saying in a sense. Mr. Priest, I am bringing this perfect lamb. It is unblemished. It is actually the best in my flock. It is very precious to me. It is very hard to give up. I am bringing it to you. And what you are about to do to this lamb, namely slit its throat, pour out its blood, and burn it up, I am fully aware that this is what you should do to me right now. This is what I deserve right now. But I also know that God in his amazing grace has provided a way for this lamb to stand in my place and be killed so that I can live. That is the attitude that they were to have. The lamb was to be unblemished with no defects, symbolizing that it was perfect, that it was sinless. The Old Testament sacrificial system, if you ever read it in the Old Testament, you would know that it is very, very bloody. Very bloody and very violent. We talk about these things just imagine what it was, must have been like to live through it, seeing animals killed day after day. It's estimated that on the Day of Atonement, the High Holy Day, that over one million animals were sacrificed. Do you realize that this would be a whole sensory experience? You would see the blood pouring under the curtains of the tabernacle. You'd see it pouring out just tons of blood. You would hear the animals being slaughtered. You would smell the flesh being burned up. It was purposely violent so that everyone would get the absolute seriousness of sin. Sin is horrible and it needs to be dealt with in a very, very serious way. But there was one huge problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it was this. All of those millions upon millions of animals that were sacrificed never took away a single sin of the people. (laughs) Never took away a single sin of the people. What they did is they pointed to one perfect sacrifice that would take place in the future that would take away the sins of the people. From the moment that mankind sinned in the garden, God promised that he would raise up someone who would reverse all of the effects of sin in our lives and in the world. We know that person as none other than Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. You see, the reason why the Old Testament sacrifices never took away sin is because it wasn't that little lamb that sinned and rebelled against God. It was a human being. And so a human being must pay for their own sins or have someone who is perfect stand in their place as a substitute. Jesus was and is that perfect sacrifice. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Therefore, he was the perfect mediator between the human and the divine, between God 
and man. Therefore, it is no accident. I hope that you realize it's no accident that when Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 1, verse 29, that John the Baptist looks at him and identifies him by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not a lamb. That's a human being. No, no, no. You got to get the Old Testament imagery. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then fast forwarding to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And in verse 12 of of Revelation 5, he says this, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And then finally, I love Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Has been sacrificed. Jesus was the lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. Jesus was the one who all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to and symbolized. With his death, Sin was truly wiped away and God's wrath was truly satisfied and turned away. What exactly did his death accomplish? Well, verse 15 tells us, says this, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And I believe that when he's talking about the law of commandments, I believe that he's uh, specifically talking here about the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was all that system of uh, you have to do this, bring this animal, bring this animal. Here's how you purify yourself. If you've been made uh, uh, impure, here's how you do it. Here's what you do. All of these things that divided uh, the people from God, that divided people from one another, the ceremonial laws, all of those were abolished in Christ. There was no longer a need for them. And these are what brought the people together. Before this, Jews and Gentiles could not worship together. They couldn't. No way would a Jew go into a, 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 a pagan temple or even a Gentile house. No way would a Gentile be allowed to go into a Jewish temple. If they did, they would be worthy of death. But now in Christ, they could worship together. And although I think that the ceremonial law is the main thing that is in, in play here, I also believe that to a certain extent, the moral law is in view here as well. And let me explain what I mean by that. The moral law is eternal, okay? So in a sense, it cannot be abolished, all right? It reflects the eternal character of God, so it can't be abolished. Jesus certainly did not abolish the moral law. He said, you don't have to do this anymore, okay? He didn't, say, he didn't abolish it as a standard of behavior, but he did abolish it as a way of salvation. He abolished it as a way of salvation. Whenever the law is in viewed in this light, uh, whenever it's viewed in this light, it is divisive, uh, for we cannot obey it. You cannot obey the law of God, no matter how hard you try. Therefore, what it does is it separates us from God, and also, and also it separates us from one another. But Jesus himself perfectly perfectly obeyed the law of God. Jesus did everything that the law required and nothing that was forbidden in the law. And in his death, he bore the consequences of the law on our behalf. He took upon himself 
the curse of the law, which was separation from God and the judgments that were threatened from those for those who did not obey the law of God. Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, which is really a parallel passage to the one that we have in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what he says. He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You have totally messed up the moral law of God. The legal requirements of the law require that you die. Jesus took all those away and he nailed them to the cross. Acceptance with God is now through faith in Jesus Christ. Whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile. The law was the barrier between us and a God. But faith is what unites us all. And this is what we're talking about, right? This, this brings us full circle. In the beginning, we said that when it comes down to it, with all of the differences that we have, we are all the same on the two most important levels, that we are all created in the image of God and that we are all sinners in desperate need of a savior. And that savior for all is Jesus. There is salvation in no other name. There is no other way. There is no other religion. We are exclusive and we are not ashamed to be exclusive. We are narrow-minded because we can be narrow-minded because we are right here, okay? We don't preach anything else. Oh, you'll be okay. No, we preach Jesus who lived the perfect life that you and I were required to live but could not and then was sacrificed as the perfect spotless lamb of God for every sin that you and I ever committed or will ever commit. That sacrifice abolished any barriers between us and God and us and each other. That's what unites us more than anything. And like I said, we divide ourselves in so many ways. And in Christ, we're going to see this next week, it's so beautiful. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free coming together in Christ. We'll see that reconciliation and that unity. But as we close today, I just want us, I want you to take some time today or sometime this week and stand in awe of your God. Stand in awe of your God. Like I said, you know, you know this to be true in your life. You hear this stuff over and over and over again, and it's no big deal, right? Oh yeah, Jesus died for him. I said, oh yeah, I've heard that. It's, that's the Sunday school answer. And we're not blown away by it. People, we were dead, spiritually rotting corpses, repulsive, deserving the full wrath of God. We don't understand what that's like because we haven't experienced it. So it's not that big of a deal. We're talking in theory right now, right? And it's not real to us. That's what we were. And Jesus has made us alive. He has delivered us. And not only that, he hasn't just delivered us. He has raised us up with Christ. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That is amazing. Do you take time to think about that throughout the week? 
You need to. It will change your life. We get distracted by so many things of this world. Think about that. Think about what God has done for us. It began with the symbolic sacrificial system and it climaxed in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who was given the name that is above every name, the name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christian, behold your Savior. Behold your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. We, we definitely need you, Holy Spirit, to open up our minds to, to grasp this. We need to take the time today, this week, to just really think through these things, to really grapple with them, to understand. Satan loves to confuse. He loves to just switch our focus to many other things. And I just pray that we wouldn't that we would focus in on you, that we would focus in on what we were apart from you and what we are now in you. Thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, we just pray that you would um, truly help us to understand these things. Help us to see people the way that you see them uh, as people created in the image of God, sinners in need of a Savior, and help us to take that Savior to them. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.